Hear the word of the Lord from the book of Numbers. The people of Israel shall pitch their tents by their companies, each man in his own camp and each man by his own standard. But the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there, be, there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel. And the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. Thus did the people of Israel, they did according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, The people of Israel shall camp each by his own standard with the barriers, with the banners of their fathers' houses. They shall camp facing the tent of meeting on every side. Those to camp on the east side toward the sunrise shall be the standard of the camp of Judah by their companies. The chief of the people of Judah being Nashon, the son of Amminadab. His company is listed as being 74,600. Those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Issachar. The chief of the people of Issachar being Nathaniel, son of Zuar. His company listed as 54,400. 54, then the tribe of Zebulun. The chief of the people of Zebulun being Eliab, the son of Helon. His company as listed being 57,400. All those listed of the camp of Judah by their companies were 186,400. They shall set out first on the march. Some of you might be doing the math in your head. I didn't check. On the south it, side, it works. It works out. Okay. <laughs> on the south side shall be the standard of the camp of Reuben by their companies. The chief of the people of Reuben being Eliezer, son of Shedwar, his company, as listed, being 46,500. And those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Simeon. The chief of the people of Simeon being Shalemiel, the son of Jerushadai, his company, as listed, being 59,300. Then the tribe of Gad, the chief of the people of Gad, being um, Eliasaph, the son of Ruel, his company, as listed, being 45,650. All those listed of the camp of Reuben by their companies were 1,450. They shall set out second. Then the tent of the meeting shall set out with a camp of the Lubeds in the midst of the camps. As they camp, so shall they set out, each in position, standard by standard. On the west side shall be the standard of the camp of Ephraim by their companies, the chief of the people of Ephraim being Elishama, the son of Amahud, his company as being 40,500. And next to him shall be the tribe of Manasseh, the chief of the people of Manasseh being Gamaliel, son of Padajur, his company as listed being 32,200. Then the tribe of Benjamin, the chief of the people of Benjamin being uh, Abedam, the son of Gideonai, his company as listed being 35,400. All those listed of the camp of Ephraim by their companies were 108,100. They shall set out third on the march. On the north side shall be the standard of the camp of Dan by their companies, the chief of the people of Dan being Ahiezer, the son of Amashadai, his company as listed being 62,700. And those to camp next to him shall be the tribe of Asher, the chief of the people of Asher being Pagiel, the son of Okren, his company as listed being 41,500. Then the tribe of Naphtali, the chief of the people of Naphtali being Ahira, the son of Enan, 
his company as listed being 53,400. All those listed of the camp of Dan were 157,600. They shall set out last, standard by standard. These are the people of Israel as listed by their father's houses. All those listed in the camps by their companies were 603,550. But the Levites were not listed among the people of Israel, as the Lord commanded Moses. Thus did the people of Israel, according to all that the Lord commanded Moses. So they camped by their standard, and so they set out, each one in his clan, according to his father's house. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you are a God who has a purpose and a plan, that um, you chose to use these clans for, um, for the foundation of what would become your church. And Lord, we thank you that um, all of these numbers, even though they're just numbers to us, they are individual people that, um, that you have chosen to be in the situation that they were and to be carrying out the purpose that you gave them. Um, so we know, Lord, that you know each one of us and that you have a purpose and a plan for each of us. And we ask that um, you would guide us in that. You would help us to be always searching for what is it that you want us to do and to know that we are known and loved by you and that you have given us um, a purpose to complete to honor you and to bring glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Pam. I think all the other readers of Scripture are getting nervous because there's been quite a bit of uh, fun names to read, so you'll each get a chance to do that. <laughs> be, be practicing. Uh, so followers of Jesus have him as the undeniable center of their lives. Like you as a Christian, as somebody who's put their faith in Jesus, or to have Jesus as the undeniable center of your life. This week, as I was studying um, this order of marching and traveling for the people of Israel, I kept coming back to the game, capture the flag, right? We've, we've all played capture the flag and rightly pray, played. There are at least two teams and each has a flag that is well within the team's ranks, kind of protected. And the goal is to invade and capture the flag of the opposing team. And it's essentially just us teaching small children basic military strategy. Um, and so it's, it's a great way to live. But the flag is vitally important, isn't it, in that game? The, the standard of the team. And if it's lost, then... The game is lost. Everything is lost in that moment. And I'm convicted that I think that we live our lives essentially playing capture the flag subconsciously over and over again in our lives. Things that we hold as vitally important that aren't really meant to be that important. They're really good things, maybe like our family or our work or even pursuit of health for us. Some of the things that we want to keep like that flag were to protect are not so good. Maybe lust or pride or our ego or addiction that we've cradled and held on to for so long. And things that we have been trying to capture for ourselves for so long that we hold on to them with all that we've got. And if they're lost, it feels like to us everything 
is lost. And this week, the kids have started to read the book of Ecclesiastes on the way to school. A perfect way to start the new year and a new school year. And they're all like, what is this? What? Everything's futile. What are you talking about? Right? But that's the point. Like, we can do life living for things that are not vitally important, but we've convinced ourselves that they are. And we live camping then around things that end up defining us when they're not meant to be the things that define us. And still we are faced over and over again with the question, is this what I'm actually meant for? Is this who who I was created to be? Maybe those flags aren't supposed to take the vital place in our life. And so this morning, we just want to invite each other to rally around the appropriate thing to have as our center. Followers of Jesus have him as the undeniable center of our lives. You're probably sitting here thinking, Jonathan, how the heck did you get that from a camping map for Israel? And I I think it it is there. Just trust me. Follow in. Um, You can send comments later. But we we just come off of the census of God's people, essentially that military census, right? It's all the men 20 years or older that are capable of going to war. And then God instructs his people how the tribes of Israel will position themselves around the tabernacle and the order in which they will move on their journey. And the truth is that they're going somewhere. That's what we have to be reminded in our study, though, that it's a number of years and decades even that they will be traveling. They are headed to the promised land, to this place of their flourishing and their rootedness with God, where they're supposed to be. The text that we've read this morning then moves from this army roster essentially to formation orders. This is how they were to be stationed in the camp, and this is how they're going to travel to the promised land. And the Levites here are not count, counted or listed, and there's some special work that they're going to do that we'll look at even more um, next week. And the truth is that we could analyze the order. We could make something of the map. Derry has in his Bible a map of this camp that he would love to show you after service. Um, he showed me a few times this month already. But what I sense that is for us from this text is what's at the center of the camp. What are they rallied around? What is their flag? And we start with the idea of proximity as presence. So we have in this text the order, the lineup, the movement of Israel and each tribe under their standard, under their individual flags. And they had purpose and it, it, it takes shape because of what they camped around. They weren't special because they were Judah or Asher or Ephraim. They were special because they camped around their king. The king, the Lord, is at the camp center in the tent of meeting what is the tabernacle. And this is the common way of military um, kind of setups in that day. And we have other examples where kings would have been in the center of the camp and their warring parties would have surrounded them. Here at the center is the tent of meeting. It is the tabernacle. If we do enough study, we learn that the tabernacle of Moses is meant to be this temporary place of worship that the Israelites built according to God's very clear specifications while wandering the desert and used until King Solomon will build his temple 
in Jerusalem. And the, the word tabernacle is a translation of the Hebrew um, word mishkan, which actually means dwelling place. And the tent is divided in two rooms. There's a holy place where the table of showbread, the golden lampstand, and the altar of incense sat in that room. And then there was the holy of holies, where the ark of the covenant was placed, where the law remained. The purpose of the tabernacle of Moses was to provide this place where the people could actually properly worship God, where priests would come and sacrifice animals on the altars of the outer court, and the bread of the presence, the continually burning lampstand, and the offering of incense were all in the holy place. This was where they came to do church. And this same center was also the place that guided Israel on their journey. See, later in Numbers 9, it writes, On the day that the tabernacle was set up, the cloud covered the tabernacle and the tent of the testimony. And at evening, it was over the tabernacle like the appearance of fire until morning. So it was always the cloud covered it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And whenever the cloud lifted from over the tent after the people of Israel, after that, the people of Israel set out and in the place where the clouds settled down, there the people of Israel camped. And at the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out. And at the command of the Lord, they camped. As long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Even when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. So the indication of the presence of God is their indication whether or not to pack up and Move, And so the censor tells them when to move and when to stay. It's the place that they meet God where they worship him. And this temporary place of uh, mediation, essentially, between God and his people until the temple and ultimately a new temple comes. And it's the undeniable center of Israel as they journey in the wilderness as they're doing here in the book of Numbers. Even when moving, it remains at the center. There are tribes that go ahead, then comes a tabernacle and others follow behind. The center of the camp is the place of the presence, the place of access to God. And it's also a holy place that they had to be careful around. We saw it in our text uh, even this morning, as Pam read, in verse 51, I don't know that we read that one. When the tabernacle is to set out, the Levites shall take it down. And when the tabernacle is to be pitched, the Levites shall set up. And if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Then in verse 53, we did read this, but the Levites shall camp around the tabernacle of the testimony so that there may be no wrath on the congregation of the people of Israel and the Levites shall keep guard over the tabernacle of the testimony. They have to keep guard because God is utterly holy. He is completely different and set apart and sin cannot dwell in his presence. So not only is this the place of presence, it can be a dangerous place for Israel and certainly for outside. And we know the presence of God changes things. We've seen in other texts that it leaves a mark. Moses is known to glow and having a diminishing radiance after he's been in the presence of God. But even in proximity, the closeness, the looking at the cloud or the pillar of fire, there is disobedience for Israel. 
the people that could see the pillar of cloud and fire every day, but they still chase after flags that are not at the center of the camp. And this generation will miss their destination. And it leaves the people and those hearing the story longing for the promised land, for permanence in God's presence, because that's what they were created for. One scholar says at the very center of this vast and complicated arrangement of an enormous people was a simple reality. The presence of God was to be at the heart of everything they did. After all, the presence of God with his people was the goal of the covenant that the Lord made with Israel in which he promised, I will be your God and you will be my people. So from that moment, from this Camp fast forward into the promised land, waiting on a Messiah and then experiencing his arrival. And the truth is that humanity no longer is camping around a tent because something better has come that this account in the wilderness is just a mere whisper of. The truth is the camp map for us is different in Christ because Jesus came to do more than simply show us God. He came to bring us into God's presence by equipping us with his perfect righteousness imputed to us by grace. And that is what bridges the gap between God's holiness and our sin. Christ gave us his holiness that enables us to be welcomed in to the presence. And the guards have been waved aside and we can enter into God's presence clothed in his righteousness. And his presence is now a safe place for those that are in Christ. No longer struck down, no longer put to death, no longer experiencing wrath. And there is no need now for the temple or the tabernacle because God himself came and set his tent up with us. See it in the start of John's gospel where he writes, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, actually tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son of the father, full of grace and truth. The theme of the Lord dwelling among his people that goes from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation 21 was perfectly fulfilled when Jesus, the God man, made his dwelling among us. The Old Testament tabernacle is where God moved in and lived with his people. And this tabernacle had no meaning whatsoever apart from Jesus Christ. Its whole purpose in the wilderness was to point people forward to the true tabernacle who is to come, this Son of God. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He is the presence. And thankfully, it's not only now for the tribes of Israel. Those far off have heard the preaching of peace, and they have been made into a dwelling place. We see it in Ephesians 2. For through him we both, the Gentiles and Jews, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Your divine, defining center is Christ and you're being built into the temple 
so others can see Jesus as the tabernacle, making us the temple, the dwelling place of God. Just think of how profound that truth is. This is the holy God. You can go into his presence and he takes up residence in you. The glory, the majesty, the power of his presence is in you, saints. What, what happens to those that camp with Jesus? We see it, you know, our friend shared the you know, healing of the brokenhearted. And that's a vision from the book of Revelation and the tree that brings healing to the nation. We see in Revelation 7, therefore, they are before the throne of God, those that camp with this God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to the springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Those with Jesus as the defining center of our life, this is to be our experience. Tasted now, fully seen then. Proximity is presence. And Jesus came close to us. And for those that believe in him, he moves in. Those who submit to him as Lord and King, who's uh, seen that his work is sufficient to cover our sin and our disregard of God, that he is sufficient to give us life in him. And Paul would Say it to the Corinthian church. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? You are essentially not your own, but made the dwelling place of God. So Israel looked up to see the presence, to recognize the cloud or the fire. And we too need to be reminded to look up, to see the proximity, to notice who dwells in us and live from that truth. That we are kept no longer facing wrath, invited all the more into the presence of God for the journey of life, to have Jesus as our undeniable center. So this then is how we travel, seeking the center. And our journey through life is lived following Jesus, seeing him, recognizing where he is going and moving with him. And he moves us, he transforms us. And as we go deeper into his grace toward us, obedience is no longer a way of earning a place, but instead for us a response to the place that we have been given in Jesus. And he did not love us because we were lovely, but he loved us to make us lovely. And that changes everything for us. Because now the center is safe, we can come. Be in his presence, blameless before him. There's a song, it's probably, it's my favorite song. You and always ask me, is this your favorite song? This, and it changes every week, right? But it's called Touch, Touch Your Robe. But there's a lyric, and some of you of Asian, Asian heritage are going to be disturbed by this line. But it says, you invite me in and you don't make me take my shoes off. Right? It's like, is Erica here? Yeah, she hates coming to my house. I'm going to leave those shoes on. She's almost you know, hovers through the house. So her feet don't have to touch the ground. But it's, you don't make my, you take my shoes off and you don't care what I've stepped in. And the line is, when you say I'm clean, I'm clean. 
That's the picture of Jesus as the tabernacle. Now welcomed in, we have him as our undeniable center because he is safe. And we live then recognizing that we have wasted enough time looking to other things than Christ for our sense of acceptability, of joy, of significance, of hope and security. And we have wasted time adoring and serving other things. And we now instead surrender to Jesus and look only to him. And that's the invitation of Christianity. Like, that's all we have to offer. If anybody says, well, tell me about this Christian thing. Tell me about what, it, what it's like to be part of Reservoir Church or uh, Evangelical Church today. It's like, well, it's not an add-on. It's not like Jesus makes you feel a little bit better. It's like, it's Jesus or nothing. He's the undeniable sinner. He's who we surrender to. He's where we find our salvation, our hope, our future, our promise of sanctification in him. And so we say to the world, like, capture all the flags that I used to look to, that I used to protect, because all I need is Jesus, and he can never be taken from me because he moved in. Jesus is the center, not because we've propped him up or even placed him there in our striving, but because he is the creator and the sustainer of the universe. And his spirit has brought life to our hearts so that we can see and believe just as we've sung this morning. And truth is, the center does not leave us the same. Those in the camp in the wilderness will not be left the same. And we'll see as we journey with them. The experience of God's presence will change, change them for good and for bad. But the good news of Jesus, the gospel, does not leave us the same. It's, it's not a sermon in, at Reservoir Church unless Tim Keller is quoted. He says, the gospel transforms our hearts, our thinking, and our approaches to absolutely everything. The gospel is the blazing center, the brilliant sun whose light, sh- light reaches the furthest hinterlands of human existence with its transformative power. So we live seeking, going further up and further into his grace, where striving ceases, where we have an undeniable center and an undeniable peace that is given to us by him, undeniable purpose to make him known. This is us endeavoring to embrace uh, the disciplines of grace, the study of scripture, the life of community together, taking communion as a reminder of his covenant with us, being people of prayer and people of worship and worship the enjoyment of who God is and his favor toward us in Christ is to be what we seek above all things. It is the one thing that is truly distinctive. One writer writes about us as God's people. If the church does not provide political commentary and social action, others may step into the gap to fulfill that. But if the church doesn't worship God, no one else will give him the glory he deserves. been thinking about the rain quite a bit lately. Some of us who did not buy lakefront property at certain hours of the day over the weekend have found ourselves having lakefront property. Pray for us tonight as more rain comes. Um, Roger, I think you're inviting people over to fill cups in the backyard and take the water home with them, right? But Earlier, at the start of the storms, right, they were saying, well, this is going to help a little bit, but it's not going to end the drought, right? And I, we've got to be close at this point. No, 
Still not, right? And uh, a pastor was quoting an article that said, scientists say the downpour is still not enough to reverse the region's severe drought. Which is true, right? Like, we just need something. But Duke Kwan, a Presbyterian pastor in D.C., says, what a drought-afflicted soul most needs is not a single event, not even a spiritual downpour, but the routine rains of grace, spiritual practices, ordinary means of communion with Christ and his saints that gradually re-irrigate the water table of the soul. When we have Jesus as our undeniable center, that's what we endeavor to see happen, that there's just this continual watering with the gospel truth of who he is and what he's done for us and who he says we are in light of that. And, you know, we've, we're continuationists, so we want a good drenching every now and again. But we need the regular flow of his peace and power as we seek the center. So we journey onward, prioritizing the things that give a clear view of Jesus, that we would see him lifting our voices to him, seeking the center. And saints, like Israel, we are on our way to somewhere. Ewan read it for us at our celebration service, and Chris backed him up so that there was credibility to the reading of Scripture. But we see it in Revelation 21, and then I saw a new heaven and new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away and he who was seated on the throne said behold i am making all things new also he said write this down for these words are trustworthy and true and he said to me it is done i am the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end To the thirsty I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. This is your destination in Christ. This is a picture of your promised land secured for you by the finished work of Jesus. And you know, I make I made a big deal about it is finished. Tattooed the Greek on my body like I know Greek so well. Right. But this is this is just one side of the bookend because it is it is finished and then it is done. That's where we're headed. That's where we're secured. And it's with him as our undeniable center that we get to see it, that we experience it, that our lives are transformed along the way. The wilderness story is just for us an invitation to recenter our lives and see Jesus every day. By his grace, you are to be bolstered for what we face ahead. Experiencing joy is essentially just a slow burn of peace with these occasional flare-ups that we're reminded of his care for us. And it's us no longer protecting lesser flags, but living under the banner that declares it is finished. That's our standard. So friends, where are you going to camp? Are you tired of coming up short, running after idols, lesser things, where your heart is looking for the proximity to your creator? 
Ask Jesus to tabernacle in you, to dwell in you, to take up residence, to be your center. And then just keep asking. Live seeking him in his grace. One pastor says, he asked the question, is my whole life so camped around the presence of God as my king that I can say, Lord, so long as I have you, there is nothing else that I need. My life is yours to command for sickness or health, for prosperity or poverty, for useful service or an apparently wasted life given up for you. Followers of Jesus have him as the undeniable center of their lives. May it be so in me. May it be so in us. Reservoir, the Lord is on the move. Jesus is bringing us home. May he be our undeniable center now and forevermore. We pray with me. Good and holy God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the wilderness journey. Even so much can look at, oh, look at the disobedience that will come from a generation of people that should have trusted you and been faithful to you. But that we would see the story is really about the center, about a a God who still brings people into promise, a God who delivers the nations, who redeems by his finished work, who dwells among us. Let that fill us up. Fuel us forward that we would carry the banner, it is finished over your people, that your kingdom would go forth. We confess that there are in our lives things that we've looked to other than you for satisfaction, security, for hope. And we surrender them to you this morning. Jesus, we ask you again to dwell in us, to tabernacle among us, that we would see you as our undeniable center. In Jesus' name.